We are in Matthew chapter 13, a very, very interesting uh, section of Scripture. We have presented for us what is known as the kingdom parables. There are seven kingdom parables recorded for us in this particular chapter. Now, we were able to look at the first of the kingdom parables a few weeks ago. We kind of got into the chapter, and that was the parable of the sower. Just in a way of of recap, let's just dive back into the text. We'll start with verse 1. We won't spend much time uh, in the first part of it. We'll get to where we need to be. But we read that on the, the same day Jesus went out of the house, he sat by the sea. What a scene. A great multitude was gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and he sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them. Matthew tells us in parables. And a parable was a story laid aside a truth. It was a creative way of revealing an idea to the willing while concealing it to the hardened of heart. Uh, Jesus actually explains the purpose of parables, verses 10 through 17. We won't look at that section. But a parable, a a story laid aside a truth to reveal it to those that are wanting to know, but to conceal it to those that are hardened. So Jesus began to teach to them in parables. He said, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on the stony places where they did have much earth. They immediately sprang up because there was no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell on thorns, and thorns sprang up (coughs) and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a good crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has... Ears to hear, let him hear. A lot of these parables um, are are given a lot of space for interpretation. In fact, I made this mention in our lead-in to the kingdom parables that you can listen to seven different pastors and you'll get seven different presentations of the kingdom parables. In fact, the more you study, probably the more confused you'll be. You'll end up kind of all over the place with different theories and different interpretations and different ways of reading it, etc., you know, one of the things about Jesus that wowed the crowds during, the, during his day was that we're told in numerous places that he spoke as one having authority and not like the scribes. Like there was a contrast between the way that Jesus taught the people and the way that the scribes typically taught. The big, the big distinction was that the scribes often, when they would present scripture, they would, they would present the interpretations of the scripture. So they would read a passage, whether it was in the Old Testament, someplace in Isaiah or Jeremiah, and they would say, this is what Rabbi so-and-so, this is his position on this passage, and this is what Rabbi such-and-such, this is his position on this passage, and there's another rabbi, and this is kind of what he thinks. Here are the three conventional positions, let's move right along. Jesus was different. He didn't present others, other people's opinions on a passage. He spoke as one having authority. He, he said, this is what it means. Now, I'm not going to be as presumptuous as Jesus to say that I and I alone have the authority on the kingdom parables. And yet, we could spend the next few weeks, if I was trying to present every interpretation of the kingdom parables, I mean, it would get laborious and long, and I don't agree with most of them, so why am I going to waste my time, yet alone yours? So, just for a little disclosure, I'm presenting for you my way of reading the kingdom parables. Not to say that that's the only way. There are others. But for the sake of time, I'm going to give you my take. I encourage you to study these things on your own. You can agree with me. You can disagree with me. Uh, That's fine. You can be wrong. 
The kingdom parables, there's seven. And again, there's lots of room for interpretation. For me, though, I have two things, two ways of reading the parables uh, that I think, that I think are, are important to getting to the root of what Jesus is articulating. One is the concept, I'll give you a little kind of heavy theology here, of, of an expositional constancy. What is an expositional constancy? It's the idea that within the scriptures, especially when we're giving a presentation of something uh, that's figurative uh, to describe a truth, that within the scriptures, that when, when a figure is used, when an illustration is nailed down, and then very specifically interpreted, so there's no, there's no need for guessing or second guessing, it's defined that throughout the scriptures, that same picture or image uh, is constant. Uh, so that, you know, the, the illustration doesn't change and the meaning wa- waver, but that when something's defined at one point, it stays that way constantly through the scriptures. We'll see a few examples of this. Um, this particular parable, the parable of the sower. Again, not n- much need for speculation. Jesus tells us, verse 18, he says, therefore, the, this is the parable of the sower. So he interprets it for us. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes, snatches away uh, what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. So no need to speculate, that's self-explanatory. But he who receives the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. For then when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word. He becomes unfruitful. But he who receives the seed on good, good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. Who indeed hears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some, some thirty. Now, within expositional constancy, this concept, because Jesus gives the interpretation for the parable, he's defining some of the imagery. And thus, when we find those same imagery, that same imagery being invoked again, even if Jesus doesn't give us the cut interpretation like he does here, we can carry forth the symbolism. Again, expositional constancy. It's constant. And within this, the seed. Jesus says the seed is what? What's the word of God? And so when we see the seed being invoked again, we understand it's the word of God in the field. Well, we'll see it with the tares, but the field ends up being the world. And, and, and we see uh, the, the plants as being people and Jesus being the sower. So we're, we're given kind of a bit of cipher to carry forward in some of the other kingdom parables. So that's the first kind of lesson. Always stay with it. Um, if Jesus establishes an image, the meaning of an image, don't, don't try to weigh, you know, get wayward on that. Just keep it. Keep it constant. The second thing I think that's important for the uh, the kingdom parables, and again, for full disclosure, uh, this is kind of an original, an original thought. Um, it's not something that you'll find taught elsewhere, but it is conviction I have. Again, this is kind of where I see the kingdom parables, <clears throat> and that being a direct parallel between seven kingdom parables taught by Jesus, recorded for us in Matthew 13, and then seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and I believe that there is a direct, distinct parallel between each of the kingdom parables, their corresponding letter in order and sequence, and what's interesting, their implication for periods of church history. Again, when you study the, the, the seven letters to the, the church, seven being completion, 
that Jesus is writing, yes, to seven literal churches there in Asia Minor in the first century. He's writing to our church, writing to you as individuals, but he's writing to kind of an ethos, an era, a movement within church history. He's addressing the church and its totality. And thus we can learn different applications of the letters based upon their corresponding periods of church history. And they're insightful and it's interesting. I I taught through the book of Revelation not too long ago. I would encourage you to go back if you're interested in those things, Revelation 2 and 3. I believe, though, that Jesus' seven letters to the church provide for us a secondary cipher to understand some of the nuances and the lessons he's trying to derive from the kingdom parables. And so as we work our way through, I will be paralleling back to the seven letters to the church because I think it gives us greater context. You'll see how this plays out. I did make mention, again, in way of introduction and recap, since it's been a couple weeks since we've been together, that this first parable, the parable of the sower, corresponds to Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus and subsequently the apostolic church, that first generation of believers that Jesus is addressing. And it's interesting that in Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus, I mean, this was an awesome church. This was a thriving church, a good church. They held true to the word of God. And yet Jesus had one thing against them, that they had left their first love. They had become so focused on obeying that they forgot the reason for obedience as a response of all that God has done for us, the love that he's shown for us. And we see within this parable. Note, you'll find people that will rename the parable, the parable of the seed. And there's some application to that. The power's in the seed, right? Seed, it needs good soil. And then people call it the parable of the soil because of the different soils and how that corresponds to our heart and our ability to receive the word of God, our willingness to receive. And then what results come from that? And yet Jesus Again, looking back at verse 18, he says, here's the parable of the sower. So yes, the the seed, that sounds fun. Uh, The soil, that's great. But Jesus is like, this parable is about who? The sower. And he defines himself as the sower of the seed. And again, in an agricultural context, in which, again, the, the region of Galilee happened to be, there's farmers in the community, in the crowd, listening to what Jesus is saying, and their first takeaway as Jesus is explaining this is like, man, you're kind of a reckless sower. You're bad at farming. I mean, because you're throwing seed just indiscriminately in places that it's not going to grow. You're wasting the seed. Like, a good farmer is going to till up the soil, and I mean, he's going to painstakingly make sure that every little seed's planted in, in, in its optimal place. And yet Jesus is describing a sower himself just walking through and throwing seed. And yet it falls in all these different places, but, but what's the heart of the sower? He's throwing seed. Powerful. You know, what a lesson to us. You know, sometimes we, we get hesitant to, to sow seed. Why? Because we, we, we interpret the soil. You know, you might have a friend that is hard, that's hard to the things of God, maybe even hostile. And as a result, you're hesitant to sow seed, to share with them the word of God. Because it's like, well, they're not going to listen to it anyway. They're hardened soil. In fact, the birds of the air, again, connected to the evil one, which we'll see. You know, we'll snatch it away. What's the point, Zach? Well, that's not the heart of Jesus. See, Jesus sows seed to every soil. It doesn't matter. He loves people, and there's hope, and there's belief. You know, even those people in your life that you're like, they're not going to receive it. You still should sow. Jesus does. Interesting. 
Let's continue, dive in to the second of the kingdom parables. The parable of the wheat and the tares, verse 24. And another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. <clears throat> Again, Jesus is playing on the same imagery here. But while men slept, so there was a man who sowed, but while the men slept, who presumably were given charge over protecting the field, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said, Sir, you, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Now a tear was, it was a weedy-like uh, plant in, this, in the first century in this day that looked almost identical to wheat. It would, it would grow within the wheat stock. It would root itself with the roots of, of the wheat. It would grow up, except for it produced no fruit. It was a tear. It looked apart, but it didn't yield anything. It was garbage. It was junk. So they, they said, you know, how does the field have tears? So Jesus said, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us to go and gather them up? Speaking of the tares. But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them, which was a problem because it would root in with the wheat, so it was hard to get rid of this weed. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into the barn. Now, this particular parable has no need uh, for our interpretation or theories to be presented because and we'll skip down i don't like to do this but i think it's relevant verse 36 jesus now explains the parable so why speculate let's just let jesus interpret it for us so jesus sent the multitude away he came back into the house the disciples came to him and they said explain to us the parable of the tares of the field so this is one that, that they found very interesting so jesus break it down for us so he answered and he said to them he who sows the good seed is the son of man. So he identifies himself as the man. The, the field is the world. No need to speculate. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest, again in the harvest within the context of the parable, is the moment in which the wheat and the tares get separated. So Jesus says, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There, speaking of the furnace of fire, will be wailing, which spoke of an emotional anguish, and gnashing of teeth, which spoke of a physical anguish. Then the righteous will shine forth as the son of the kingdom to their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, pretty self-explanatory, the purpose, the meaning behind the parable of the tares. God sows seed into the world, and wheat grows. They're the sons of men. They're us. They're the Christians, the believers. The soft soil that takes the seed and grows and is producing a crop. 
But within this world, there is another force, another influence. Jesus identifies him as the devil and calls him his enemy, who is also sowing in the world. And what is being produced from the influence of, of, of the devil within the world? Well, it's the tares. And Jesus is saying there will be a day in which the, the wheat and the tares will be separated. That's not for you to do. It's not for you to judge what is the wheat and what is the tares. It's not for you to, to classify uh, this person as this and this person as that. No, no, no. This will all get taken care of, the wheat and the tares, at the end. At the end. Again, you can take what Jesus says here and then go back to the end, the final few chapters of the book of Revelation, which gives us the conclusion to the, the whole story. But we're told that the angels go across the, the earth and bring everyone to a final judgment. And it's in this final judgment that, yes, the wheat is taken. The sons of, of God enter into a kingdom of everlasting and then it's the tares, it's what's been sowed, it's the people that are wicked and evil and have deceit that, that, that end up being judged. Again, Jesus says hard things in the description of the particular judgment here at the end of the age. The angels have a role in, in, in gathering. There's a sifting that occurs. But there's a judgment that happens that yields an actual consequence. I know hell is not a popular topic of discussion within the modern church. Interesting, Jesus probably wouldn't be invited to speak at most modern churches because he spoke about hell more than any other person in the scriptures. Why? Because it's a real place he doesn't want you to go to. You know, So he's warning you. It's not a good place to end up. There is wailing. There is an emotional anguish. But then there's a physical torture to it. So the tares, the wheat, the sifting. Now, it's correlation to the seven letters and again, if you want to flip there, that's fine. But if you go to Revelation chapter 2, we read into the angel of the church of Smyrna, right, these things is the first and the last who was dead and came to life, which can only be Jesus. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So there's this description of a blending of, of the, e the, the wicked one, the evil, the enemy. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt, and what does Jesus invoke? By the second death. So he's speaking of the judgment. So this parallel of the tares coming back over to this church of Smyrna. The church of Smyrna represented the second wave or movement within Christianity known as the persecuted church. Church, Satan, there was an opposition during the Roman Empire beginning really with Nero and continuing on for several hundred years through the reigns of Diocletian and whatnot, there was massive persecution of the church. Now, I don't limit the exhortation to the persecuted church, however, to just being that first wave of persecuted saints because if you do research on the status of the church today throughout the world, there's a greater persecution happening today by numbers than there, than there were then. Like, we have a luxury, folks, today, the fact that we can gather here and have a Bible and worship God freely 
There is a growing opposition within our own country that is true. But within the world at large, like we don't understand persecution, but there are saints, brothers and sisters, doing what we've been doing for 2,000 years, what we're doing this morning, but they're doing it in secret and in fear of arrest and persecution and torment. There are many countries throughout the world where Christianity is illegal. The persecuted church, yes, it might have started, but it continues. And what is the exhortation that Jesus is giving through this parable? He's saying, I've sowed seed, and it's been mixed in with evil. But guess what? The day is coming. It'll all get sifted. It'll all get figured out. All wrongs will be righted. Take heart. There is a first death that you might indeed face, but there is a second one that you shall be an overcomer. Well, let's backtrack, verse 31, to the third of these kingdom parables. We read another parable Jesus put forth to them. So he's, he's still on the shore. The crowd is still gathered. He's sitting in the boat. He's, he's teaching the people that have gathered. He puts forth this, this saying. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air nest in its branches. Now, again, this particular parable is fraught with all kinds of speculation and interpretations. Again, you will read seven different commentations from seven different commentators, and they will be all over the place in regards to the tree. Let's break down the interesting component of what Jesus is literally describing. Because again, most of us aren't farmers, and you might not be familiar with the mustard seed. Again, it is the smallest of the seeds, and it grows to the point in which it's about a bush. That's the size than a mustard seed. It doesn't grow big, it doesn't grow tall, it's not, it's not mighty. It's, it's fairly small. But what Jesus is describing is something that's abnormal. It's an abnormal growth that is very perverse. You see, a mustard seed doesn't grow into a tree, something that the people would have understood. And yet Jesus is describing the seed that grows into this grotesque perversion of itself. It's big. It's bigger than it should be. It's more powerful than, than what should have naturally been yielded. It's a mustard seed that should have been a bush, but it's this tree. And as a result of it growing to this abnormal size, Jesus then tells us that the birds of the air find home in its branches. They nest in its branches. Now, the birds of the air, Jesus doesn't give us an interpretation of this parable, but expositional constancy tells us what, or can identify what regarding the birds. Well, you go back to the sower. The birds are very clearly an evil influence, if not directly Satan himself. It's a wickedness. The birds of the air with the parable of the sower come and snatch away the seed. They take away the word of God. And so you have this growth. Again, the kingdom parables, Jesus is describing, I believe, very specifically the church. And he's describing a church that has grown to an abnormal size. And because of its size, it has room for corruption and evil, wicked influences. Now, again, it's parallel. So we flip back over to Revelation. We're told in the third letter, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos, verse 12 of chapter 2, write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works, 
and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Interesting. And you'll hold fast to my name, did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where, what, interesting, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. You can study all of this on your own. Verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This, this third church movement, you have the apostolic church giving way to the persecuted church. And yet something interesting happens around 300s or so A.D., Whereas the Roman Empire had persecuted the church and persecuted the church. In fact, the old adage, you know, uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. It was not a good look for the, the, the emperor to burn down half of the capital city. And there was an outcry, an outrage against it. And Nero blamed the Christians. He needed a scapegoat. And beginning there, continuing onward, there was a great, incredible persecution of the church, of the saints. And yet the church grew incredibly during this time period. It was estimated that for every, every one martyr during the reign of Diocletian, four converts. This is the time period in which uh, infamously Christians were taken to the Colosseum and fed to wild animals for sport and gain and entertainment. Nero famously would dip Christians in wax and light them on fire for his garden parties. Gro grotesque things. And yet the gospel rooted and it spread and God blessed. Satan attacked the church physically. But the church remained resilient. We see that through persecution. The refiner's fire. And yet, as the empire continued and the downfall of the, of the Roman Empire uh, continued its commencement, a man came onto the throne by the name of Constantine. And he changed the entire policy. He flipped it on its head. He said, you know, fighting against the church has not worked out very well. And there were several edicts that kind of brought this to head. But there was, uh, under Constantine, a, a, an interesting merger that immediately happened. No longer was the church of Jesus Christ the enemy of the Roman Empire. It became the official religion of the empire. In fact, under Constantine, there was an unholy alliance. The state merged with the church. And you know what happened? It grew incredibly. Because now money was given to the church and support behind the church. It had the backing of Rome, the empire. The church grew way larger than it should have. It was as though it was a mustard seed that grew into this ugly tree. And what gave room during this particular period of church history? Satan began to dwell in her midst. And corruption began to be, to be seeded out. You see how there's a bit of a cipher with the, the time periods and our understanding of these kingdom parables. What Jesus is describing here is, I think, this particular reign, the, the Byzantine period of church history, the church merging with the state, growing into this grotesque monster that possessed so much evil and wickedness, gave room for things that it shouldn't have. Verse 33, back Matthew 13. Another parable, Jesus spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven 
is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. (laughs) You know, the disciples will find time to be like, hey, Jesus, what did you mean by this? But it's like, they didn't do this with this one. It's like, what in the world? What is this parable? And again, you'll find all kinds of speculation. Expositional constancy gives us some indication of what Jesus is, 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 is describing. Because leaven has a consistency, a consistent meaning all throughout the scriptures. Uh, leaven is what you, what you added to cause the bread to rise. And leaven was always a picture, going all the way back to the, the law, it was always a picture of sin, of something that was added and it corrupted, it took over, it corrupted. It was why uh, they were instructed um, when it came to the Passover Seder that they had unleavened bread. It was to be pure. It was to be without leaven. It's why communion. It's why we use the matzah. Unleavenedness is a description of sinlessness, of perfection. There's no leaven. It's pure. And yet we have this picture here of this woman who's making three measures of meal, which in the Greek is a lot of food. It's a lot. And yet this woman adds within the the mix, the meal mix, she adds leaven so that over time it corrupts the whole batch. Now, again, I think the best interpretation finds a parallel, again, back in the book of Revelation. Because we get to verse 18 of chapter 2, book of Revelation. This, This next period of church history coming out of the Byzantine To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Verse 24, now to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who do not know the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my words, my works, until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. I also have received from my father. I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so when you go back, another parable he spoke, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. What is the explanation? Well, we know leaven is sin. Sin being mixed in with the meal, the whole meal goes bad. But when you get to this fourth period of church history coming out of the Byzantine Empire, you get into what's known as the Roman Catholic Church, where things get seated. There was a seat of power. You had a merger with the church and the state, but then you had the, the, the presentation of the church being Rome. And you had the, 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 the Pope becoming the, the grand authority. Now, 
let me just as a qualifier say that I think, again, according to the parallel of the letter to the church of Thyra, Tyra, that there are many within the Roman Catholic Church that are genuine followers and believers of Jesus, born again Christ followers. And yet we do see within this great inflated church movement an interesting thing taking place. You see, as people began to check some of the doctrines that were being articulated by Rome, they started to discover that many of the things that Rome was preaching didn't find any justification within Scripture, the meal. In fact, leaven was being added into the Scripture to produce all kinds of perversions, from, uh, from the worship of saints and Mary to uh, the concept of purgatory, which was introduced by the Roman Catholic Church so that there could be penance and the purchasing of, of icons and relics. It was a way to, to exert power over the people. There was all kinds of crazy doctrines introduced to the meal that spoiled it all. So much so that they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't preach to the people in the common tongue. They would preach in Latin, in which no one understood so that they could never check. And the Bible was never uh, presented in, 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 in the common tongue. No one could fact check that what they were being taught was actually the word of God. Again, there was leaven introduced and it spoiled it all. Verse 34 and 35, there's a little reprieve. We read that all these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and without a parable, he did not speak to them. Now, there's a little interpretation to that. It, it may be that in regards to the things that he's articulating about the kingdom, that he switches his mode of apparatus to just parables at this point. It could be that this means that literally, in regards to Galilee, Jesus no longer taught in anything but parables. His Galilean ministry, for some context, is wrapping up. The end is nigh. There's a few different ways of reading that. But parables become his main mode of teaching. And then Matthew adds, as he does, being a Levite, being an expert in the Old Testament, that this happened so that it might be fulfilled, which the prophet spoke, saying, and he quotes from Psalm 78, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. We fast forward to verse 44, now this fifth parable. Again, Jesus has moved from the shore back into the house. The audience is not a great multitude, but it's back to his disciples. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, you will hear a lot of pastors preach this in the context of salvation. The idea that you are the person and you come across this great treasure and you sell it all for the treasure, to buy the field to the treasure. And, and the, the application for the saints will be like, well, like, you got to give it all in order to purchase this great gift. The problem is that's heresy. <laughs> and that's completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus, which says you can't pay for anything. You, you don't have enough to buy a... a, a, a any, any of it, that it's a free gift from God. There's nothing you can do. It's given to you, and you receive it. It's not selling it all and grabbing hold of it. It's dying and being given. So what is Jesus trying to articulate then? Again, for the sake of time, we're not going to go and read all of the passages in the book of Revelation. The announcements went too long, so I'll just blame them. But coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, this fifth period of church history, which, by the way, is continuing today, 
And Jesus seems to bring it all the way into tribulation. One of the consequences, if you don't repent, you'll enter great tribulation. But coming out of this global church, Jesus finds a hidden treasure. Like, see, Jesus is the one, and and it's personal application. Jesus sells it all and buys you. That's what he does. Jesus is the one that sells it all to purchase you, that he sees you as a hidden treasure. But within its application and correlation to church history, it was in the midst of, of this Roman Catholic church that there started to be little glimmers of light. Seeds were being sown. The Bible started to be translated into the languages of the people. People started reading it. Martin Luther, as an example, who was a Catholic priest, reads, the just shall live by faith. And it sparked within him something incredible, a conversion. The church experienced a reformation. It had much opposition. Protestantism came to its fruition. A church that had been corrupted by leaven and sin. Jesus found within the field, the world, a hidden treasure that he cherished. Continuing again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, within its context of its parallel, coming out of the Protestant Reformation, which Jesus has some strong things to say about in the book of Revelation. There was a return to to Bible teaching and the word of God, and that was great, but there there became this dead orthodoxy that emerged. But then this second, this next parable and sequence, this one of very similar in regards to the previous, but this merchant seeking a beautiful pearl, he finds one pearl of great price. We find within the sequence of church history that from the Protestant Reformation was birthed the Church of Philadelphia, the faithful church, who was not big, was little and didn't have much resources. Had, but God was faithful and they were faithful and God was blessing. It was the faithful church, something that Jesus, he doesn't have any criticism against her. She's small, she's weak, she's a little pearl, but of great price to Jesus. Pearl is an adjutant within the clam, within the shell. And the greater the adjutant, ultimately the greater the pearl. A pearl is developed through a natural process. It's something that's completely organic. It's not manufactured, it's birthed. Reformation after reformation, revival after revival, we see within this church of Philadelphia, within this period of church history, movements of the Holy Spirit. Things that can't be attributed to some prowess of a man or some great intellect, but pure movements of God's Spirit brought about by a faithful return to the teaching of God's Word. Revivals brought on by Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards. Small, but a pearl of great price. And then verse 47, again the kingdom of heaven, this final seventh, is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind of fish. And if you've ever been to the the ocean, you'll see these type of dragnets. 
they're, they're big nets cast on the back of a boat, and they just they catch everything. You know, and then and then from the, the big haul that comes in, you know, you're 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 looking for the fish of good price or or what you were actually fishing for, you're separating that into one pile. You're getting rid of the junk. So a drag net just kind of catches all, which we're told, so it catches some of every kind, which when it was full, they draw it to shore, they sat down, they gathered the good into vessels, they threw the bad away. So it will be, Jesus says, at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? He is speaking to his disciples. And they said to him, yes, Lord. Which is the dumbest admission, I think, in Scripture. Yeah, 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 we, yeah, yeah, we got it. Cut and dry. Glad you articulated this for us so that there will be no confusion moving forward. Yes, Lord. Then Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe instructing, instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, things both new and old. So we have this, this final parable, this parable of the dragnet. And again, Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. I think the application being the church. Note in the previous parable, the parable of the tales, the tares, uh, there's more of a macro application to the world, which is why Jesus invokes a field, because he's already defined the field as the world. So we understand the imagery. But the dragnet, this is not, this is not the world. I think that there's a particular application to the church. The imagery has changed. Again, something that they, they would understand. They're there at the Sea of Galilee. Most of the disciples, a good portion of them, were fishermen themselves. They understood what was being articulated. And yet its application and parallel to church history, I think, gives us an interesting application. Because we have this faithful church emerge. A church that becomes a missionary church. A church that is that's sending uh, people around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a faithful element that's teaching God's word. It's something that's being produced organically through the power of the Holy Spirit. But within the midst of all of this, this final age that will lead us to tribulation, there is another church that emerges, a seventh and final church, the church of Laodicea. And what's interesting in Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea is that Jesus tells this church, he says, he says, because you are neither hot nor cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. Heavy thing for Jesus to say to a church. But within the context of the church age in which we are today, you know, we have, we have an idea of, of, you know, in order for us to reach the lost, the church needs to be like the world. The more of the world that we're like, the more comfortable the world will be in coming. It's interesting that when you study history, church history, coming off of World War I and World War II, there was a, 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 an exodus of men within the church. There was a de-emphasis of evangelism, of the responsibility of individuals to carry the burden of going into their world with the gospel of Jesus. And the church was struggling within numbers. You can study the history of it all. And, it, and, and from that emerged an idea. Well, instead of equipping saints with, with the, the power of the gospel to go into the world 
and to evangelize, to tell people about Jesus, we will encourage the church, the Christians, to just bring people to church so that we can tell them about Jesus. You're the emergence of revivals and, 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 and evangelistic crusades. Since we can't trust you to go out and fulfill the Great Commission, the church will fulfill the Great Commission by you just bringing, and we'll make a comfortable environment to do so. The church's mission over this last period became about, about reaching unbelievers. When nowhere within Scripture will you ever find that mandate for the church of Jesus Christ. You will find it for Christians, but not the church. The church was instituted in order to do what? To equip Christians with the gospel of Jesus to go into the world as a missionary. To whatever world or career field that you happen to be in. And what we've done by saying, hey, we're going to be church for the unchurched. One big church in our area will call church for, for the unchristian. Well, how about being a church for Christians? What a novel idea. That's what we try to be here. It's like if you bring your unbelieving friend to church, well, they're going to get hit between the nose with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they'll either respond in faith or they'll leave. Like at what point were we called to be seeker-friendly? You know who's like the least seeker-friendly person in the scriptures? Jesus I mean, seriously, you will never find the adjective nice associated with Jesus. Jesus had, the, had really hard things to say to people because it was a matter of life and death and heaven and hell. He wasn't playing a game. It's what the world needs is the truth to stand as the truth unapologetically, even if it gets persecuted. What the world needs out there is not a place to come so that they can feel like the world. They need a place to come where they can be reminded that we are not of this world, that there is something else happening in this place. And that it's about heaven, that this is not our home, that this world is headed for destruction. Now, I'm not saying that we can't be modern, but what is the calling? And within the church movement, the church of Laodicea, seeker-friendlyism, the attractional church model, let's dumb it all down, where Christians aren't being fed. Let's make a church that's a mile wide and an inch deep, thinking that anyone has fun in that pool. You can't even swim in it. I need a pool with at least a deep end. Now, there can be a, like a shallower area for the limp arm community. I don't swim that well, but you need a diving board or something to have some fun. Instead of a church being an inch deep and a mile wide, like there needs to be some substance, some essence. We need to teach God's word, and learn it, absorb it, be transformed by it, and then go out more like Jesus. That's the goal, filled with his spirit, empowered by his calling. And Jesus presents this dragnet. There's some good stuff in it, but there's a whole lot of trash. What an indictment, I think, of the church today. There's some good in it. But there's a whole lot of trash. And Jesus says that'll get judged. Now, what's interesting is it's not on us to do the judging. Jesus is like, I'll take care of that. That day will come. I've got it. And then he says, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And he gives this picture of a, of a scribe who is able to take out from the scriptures the things that are old, old ideas, to merge them with the new, to make sense of things. 
It's not all about the old. It's not all about the new. It's this blending of the two. I think, and again, this is just a position. I think that this gives more credence to the, the, the combination of like Jesus realizing, hey, you guys know what's going on here, what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you have no idea. So these are some of the old things. I'll give you some new things later on to make it easier. So again, seven kingdom parables, and then Jesus is like, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And so later on, he writes seven letters to provide a deeper explanation and cipher for what we find being presented here. There's all kinds of stuff loaded into this. I didn't want to take four weeks to do it. I can't believe I got through it. Jesus, thank you. In his name, amen.